is a bloody disgusting podcast network. back to horror queers we're talking couples seeking refuge from a storm in a dark house full of sexually deviant possibly homicidal queer people but we're not talking about the rocky horror picture show and i'm joe <laughs> and i'm trace and we're talking forcing a bunch of women back into the closet uh <laughs> so much closets in this movie. so many closets in this movie uh we are talking james whale's 1932 classic film the old dark house and i just do want to clarify james whale's 1932 film we are not talking the william castle remake from 1963 although i do want to see it now having seen this original film Apparently, it's more comedic and therefore not as good. Yeah, and I kind of looked through the plot summary. It's a bit different, and it was not well received upon its release. But I, I'm not gonna lie. I, I could watch something that kind of leans heavier into like the schlock factor. You know, we already have this really quote unquote classy version from '32. So why not give us something that's William Castlely? <laughs> Well, I mean, that's what William Castle did, right? He schlocked things up and he gave them gimmicks. That's true. Joe, so I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the oldest film we have covered on the podcast? By far, yes. By we far. have not covered a film earlier than the 70s before now. Oh man, we are failures. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the reason why we're doing this, because we had a couple of people who asked us specifically to try to cover a few older films. And folks, if you are missing that, as a reminder, we do have an editorial that comes out each month, and we do tend to do some lesser known older horror films on there. Yeah, but if you haven't seen this movie, or if you're wary of watching this movie because it's older, uh, never fear, it's 72 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> super short it runs at a brisk pace and these people are drunks idiots and mad people it's quite entertaining i actually didn't know it had comedic elements walking into it so when i saw that it was listed as a horror comedy thriller film i was a little bit surprised and then watching it i was like oh okay i see it i see it now yes but that's you know courtesy of your big old mo filmmaker mm-hmm but before we get too far into this, we do have a special guest uh, joining us today. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, you have seen her work on Pop Culture Beast, but you most likely know her as the co-host of the horror and true crime podcast Stop Horror Time. Please welcome fellow Katie Lotz and Legends of Tomorrow enthusiast, Kay Graham. <laughs> Hello. Hi. I'm so glad that's my legacy. I always want to be introduced as a Katie Lotz enthusiast first and foremost. <laughs> Honestly, if, if if you wouldn't have told me that, I would just put that on my fucking Twitter bio. <laughs> I mean, you still could. You two could duke it out. I know. Yeah, we'll so have our solidarity. own Katie Lotz podcast. <laughs> oh my god. I'm willing to bet there's enough people who would listen to a Katie Lotz podcast. <laughs> yeah, lesbians. Everywhere. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Kate? I'm great. Thank you for asking. How are you guys? Doing well. Joe, how are you doing? I mean, man, I'm <laughs> in there. <laughs> 
it's the middle of July. We're having some fun. I, I won't lie. Seeing the torrential downpour in this movie kind of made me hungry for like a little bit of better weather because it yeah. is a heat wave right now. I'm sorry. You mean the bucketfuls of rain? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm wor- a little worried that James Whale was a bit of a sadist because apparently he really wanted to drench this cast. Well, he wanted to drench them in something. Awesome. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, Kate, Kate, was this your first time seeing this film? No, no, I'd seen it a couple times before. Might you call yourself a fan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she specifically requested to come on this episode. Yeah, when I saw it on the list, I, I snatched it because I, I mean, I'm no expert or anything. Aren't you glad I'm on here? Uh, but I'm definitely a, <laughs> definitely a James Whale fan. And this, I watched this, you know, when I first started getting into like expanding on his work and. It's sad that there's only really four horror movies that he ended up directing, and this is one of them. But this, this is a fun one. I, this time around, I was like, "Is this is this a hangout movie? Can this count as a hangout movie?" Because I just, it kind of is, though, right? Like, yeah. it, it starts as like a threesome, and then like just more people just keep piling into this <laughs> ensemble, and it's like, okay, like we're we're just having a party, and there's such a big focus <laughs> on the food and the drinks, and it's mm-hmm. like. I mean, I definitely got like, I mean, I'm saying House on Haunted Hill vibes, even though obviously Mm. this film preceded that. But um, that's definitely the vibe I got from it. Although a little bit maybe less nefarious scheming going on in this one. Uh, Yeah, it's not as overt scheming. I think these poor, unfortunate people have wandered into something beyond their control. And half the fun is that you think, oh, it's just going to be a bit of a gay old party as these people, you know, drink their way through this old dark house. And then instead it's like, oh, did we walk into a big old pile of incest? Maybe. (laughs) Kind of. I mean, it's like, oh my God, wait, I actually made a list. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A list of incest? No, a list of things. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. This is from your Monsters in the Closet book, Joe. Your your book. Just my book, yes. I wrote it. <laughs> no credit at all to Harry M. Benshaw. <laughs> yeah, that book. Um, no, no, no. It's incest, necrophilia, male and female homosexuality, androgyny, sadomasochism, and orgiastic behavior. Folks, if you have not watched this movie, what are you waiting for? <laughs> but I think that oversells it, though, right? Because I think, I mean, it's a pre-code film, so these things aren't going to be, like, on front and, out front and center for, like, your viewing pleasure. It's things that you have to really kind of look between the lines for so if you walk into this movie expecting just to see all those things you're you might be a little bit disappointed when you end it yeah and even the stuff that is there and it's all it's rampant but it all this is still part of the era of where like the representation that you do see is usually in the villains or the monsters Mm -hmm. um and then even what i think the that 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 same book joe that we were talking about referenced how like even if the hero showed any of those tendencies by the end, they're still kind of shoehorned into the, the heterosexuality that spo- they're supposed to be in. Oh, yes. Yeah. You can experiment with things, particularly in this time period, like horror films and melodramas were yeah. very good at letting characters out of the sandbox and into more deviant, non-gender norm behavior, as long as by the end of the movie, they were either back in the sandbox or they had been punished. And that's... That's kind of the case with this film, but you can't blame Whale for trying. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, he knew the system that he was working in. The fact the the whale parts are everything that comes before the ending. And that, I think, is part of the reason why the ending with the marriage proposal just 
you're like you either laugh at it or you think it doesn't work. <laughs> it what's funny is too because I well we'll get, we'll talk about it a bit more when we get to the reception of the film at the time. But yeah, that romance was always criticized in every single review <laughs> that came out, and it really is just a bizarre thing. But I almost feel like he inserts it as kind of like a spoof of heterosexuality to be like, "You fucking straights, look at y'all. Y'all are so <laughs> this stupid." What it's like. I mean, it is a comedy. <laughs> They're almost U-hauling, though, if we're going to hear something. <laughs> yes. Like, we meet, we instantly fall in love, and we're already picking out the, the U-haul the next day, right? <laughs> I, I will confess, and y'all are going to laugh at me, so I was such a bad horror fan, because again, you know, like, I born in the late 80s, and I, I didn't really do my homework when it came to watching horror films until really my late 20s. I learned who James Whale was not by watching something like, say, Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, but I was watching the classic t- ABC television show Once Upon a Time, oh, in God. which <laughs> David Ayers plays Dr. Whale in the, sh- in the show, and in the first season it's revealed that he's like the Frankenstein's monster creator, and right. I was like, that's weird, why is he called Dr. Whale? And then, of course, <laughs> it's because it was a reference to James Whale. I didn't know Frankenstein was on there. They they get real loose with their Disney adaptations. <laughs> well, it's meant to be like a revisionist take. So everything that you think you know based on the iconic characters that they're portraying are supposed to be subverted or inverted. So in that case, you, you think you know exactly who he's playing just because of the name. And then, of course, they try to undercut it. And sometimes it works and sometimes yeah. it doesn't. It, it's better in the early goings. Um, it definitely... Went on for seven seasons too long. Yeah. Should have been a one and done. <laughs> yeah, it should have been. But yeah, okay, so well, then before we get into it, then I did want to just kind of start with a little bit of tidbits about James Whale, because this is a man who, I mean, was in Hollywood, was out and gay. Like, mm-hmm. he had no fucking apologies about it, and was somehow allowed to make some of the most influential horror, I mean, as you said, like four horror films of cinema, really. So... Basically, he before he got into film, he was an officer during World War One. was captured on the Western Front, and spent over a year as a POW. During this time, he discovered that he had a love of theater, <laughs> as well as a knack for poker. The IOUs he collected from the fellow officers provided him the nest egg necessary for him to pursue a career in theater after the war. Um, he channeled his wartime experience into directing a play called Journey's End in 1928, This play was such a huge hit that it led him to direct a Broadway version of the film in 29, and then the film adaptation in 1930. This obviously put him on the map in Hollywood, so he spent a brief period of time working for Paramount Pictures, and then he met a handsome young film executive, David Lewis. Although Lewis apparently didn't think highly of Whale initially, his attitude quickly changed, and the two lived together as a couple from 1930 until 1952. And I guess uh, Lewis kind of helped him get into the universal fold of things, which is how uh, Whale gave us films like Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, and this. Um, But he did retire in Hollywood in 41, following a string of box office disappointments and increased difficulties navigating the politics of Hollywood, because he just would not be a quiet gay, I guess. He was just too loud and proud. Yeah, he ended up sort of retiring into sadness. He had a couple of strokes, and then apparently he ended up committing suicide, which is deeply unsettling when you think about the trajectory of, like, arguably one of the most influential queer directors in cinema history. And he he goes on to have this kind of sad, quiet, slow demise. Have you all seen Bill Condon's Gods and Monsters? Oh, yeah, I was about to ask you guys that. <laughs> well, so I, I have, I, 
I haven't seen it, and I really want to. And honestly, I think I'm going to wait and watch it until we cover it for the podcast, because even though uh-huh. it's not a horror film, it's definitely something that, because, it, I mean, yeah, it's about, like, James Whale's last days, and he's played by yeah. Ian McKellen, and I've heard it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's it's heartbreaking, because it's, it's all about what, what you were just saying about kind of the sadness of his decline in his career and just living out his last decade or so. Although apparently it is quite fictionalized oh, so it's I'm not sure. yeah. historically accurate in case people are like oh i'm just gonna do the the cheat sheet and watch this movie <laughs> oh no for sure it definitely works as a great intro i think though because that was kind of my introduction to james whale before i i think i had seen like the first frankenstein when i had gone well i that. think because i mean obviously they have someone playing elsa lanchester in the film i think they recreate some scenes from frankenstein and bride of frankenstein yeah it's like flashbacks mm-hmm but, I mean, I, I'm also just fascinated by that because Bill Condon was known for mostly directing Candyman 2, and then he brings <laughs> out gods and monsters. <laughs> well, and then he went on to become super prestigious, and, I mean, now he's kind of doing his own prominent gay director thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm, for sure. So, yeah, Whale had done Frankenstein before this. Obviously, it was a huge hit. Um, he wouldn't do Franken- uh, Bride of Frankenstein until 35. So, in between those films, he worked on The Old Dark House. This film is a, is an adaptation of the novel Benighted, uh, written by J.B. Priestley. That novel, apparently this follows the, the plot of that novel very, very closely, but the book is more about post-World War I disillusionment. I, maybe I'm wrong, I don't really get a lot of that from this film, because I think Whale's interested in other things. Yeah, there's a touch of it in the conversation between Penderel and Porterhouse when they're talking about how Porterhouse got rich because they both served and, like, one of them is poor and one of them is rich. Gotcha. The only thing that the screenplay, which was written by R.C. Sheriff and Ben Levy, really added was that they added uh, a significant level of comedy to the story, Um, which I I did find quite a bit of this uh, very funny, mostly from Ava Moore's Rebecca character, who is kind of delightful to me. <laughs> you didn't like Horace? Oh, no, I like Horace, but you know me and a good bitch. I, I must <laughs> say, though, I am surprised he didn't cast someone like Una O'Connor, who plays kind of like the same type of character in his Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein films, but I'm wondering if he just hadn't met her yet. Yeah, it's entirely possible. Well, I'm curious, Kate, because you... You said you're a big fan of this film, and you've seen Whale's other movies. So I'll confess, I've only seen Bride of Frankenstein. And oh, okay. Have I seen Frankenstein? I will vouch for Invisible Man. It's my favorite yeah. one of those Universal movies. It, yeah, same. It's my favorite Whale. It's my favorite Universal. It's, it's mean, too. It's mean it, as fuck. It's, yeah. He's a dick. He's not like this un- misunderstood monster. He's just a dick. He is. And what's interesting is I- I'm fairly certain that um, the Invisible Man has the highest body count in all those Universal Monster films, oh, which yeah. is ironic considering he's, quote unquote, just a man. Yeah, he derails a train. There's yeah. no going up against that. I mean, I feel like that that is the narrative of like most yeah. of these films, right? Is that we've got characters who are just absolute dicks to one another and that's where the conflict comes from mm-hmm. oh yeah everyone's so bitchy in this to each other from the get-go even the, like the couple that you see is, is just bickering while their friend sleeps in the back while Henry's just like i don't yeah anyway well and that that's really the first subversion of your typical trope there right yeah. like you know you expect your heterosexual couple which is great and then they reveal that they have another man in the backseat <laughs> like it's not yeah. sexual but it's still kind of like oh okay we're going there yeah this thruple traveling around mm-hmm. the the welsh countryside i i will confess i thought pendril was like gonna be dead at some point but this isn't really that kind of movie no there's actually only one person who dies in this entire movie and it's exactly who you think it'll be well 
It's the villain question mark of the piece. Mm. The villain you don't even know exists until two thirds of the way through the film. Yeah. <laughs> I did read in, I think I was in Whale's biography that Penderley dies in the book originally and they changed it. Maybe really? that's okay. that's probably the big change they did to like yeah. give him a straight relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we can't have Gladys just sitting over here doing nothing. We got to give her a man. <laughs> so yes, this film comes out October twentieth, nineteen thirty-two, released by Universal Pictures with a runtime of seventy-two minutes and a budget of supposedly two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Which I'm not going to play with inflation, but that's probably a lot of money today. The reviews for the film, so it's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes right now with a 7 out of 10 on Letterboxd, but originally the film kind of got a mixed release and really, a mixed reception and really bad word of mouth. In the United States, Variety and the Hollywood film, Filmograph gave it negative reviews. It was called a somewhat inane picture. It did good box office the first week, but then the negative word of mouth just kind of tanked it. The audience, like, turnout dropped to less than half its second week. Uh, the film was pulled after just 10 days. It did kind of better in London, but uh, it still wasn't really a big hit. Uh, it wasn't until, really, the film was found again that it's it, people started paying attention to it. Because in 1957, Universal did lose the rights to the story because of William Castle's remake. So for many years, the original version was considered a lost film because they just, like, I guess no one had the rights to show it or restore it or whatever. It wasn't until director Curtis Harrington, who was a friend of Whale, helped rediscover the, uh, the print for the film, having repeatedly asked Universal Studios to locate the negative, and they kept being like, well, we're looking in our vault and we can't find it. And I guess he went and hit personally. <laughs> it's like a tale as old as time, right? Oh, we don't know where that film reel is. We've lost it. It's like, how big is that fucking vault? Just go send someone in there. <laughs> I just have this image of him walking to like a big glass case that says the old dark house print on it and goes, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> this oh, is anything. this the one you're looking for? Um, but yeah, so yeah, he, he basically got them to, uh, he went to, he persuaded the George Eastman House Film Archive to finance a new duplicate negative of the poorly kept first reel, because when they found it, it was like moldy as fuck, and they restored the rest of the film. But like, it didn't even hit home video until the mid-90s. Well, because home video wasn't a thing until the late 80s. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but still. I mean, like, it wasn't even showing on TV and shit, I'll say. Right, okay. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering, Kate, because this film doesn't have the stamp of a universal monster. Is that why you think people maybe forgot a little bit about it? Because it was surprising to me that he made so few big films. And then this is the one that people now talk about, but I feel like nobody talked about it for a very long time. That's good that people are talking about it now. And I think it's great that it's it's accessible. It's on Shutter, So maybe people will just like accidentally discover it that way too. It's in the, it's even in the queer horror section of Shudder. So hey. Uh. Um, but yeah, that's a good point is that like, even though it's technically universal and horror, like, I guess you wouldn't, and Boris Karloff's there, I guess right. it's not considered really like a hashtag monster movie. I mean, the title is a bit generic though, right? Like yeah. the old dark house, like, okay, it it's not, I mean, it doesn't have the same ring as The Haunting or um, yeah. The Haunting of Hill House or something like that. I will say, so I, I did buy the Blu-ray of this um, because it has, it has a new 4K re- restoration. Ooh. I thought I had ordered the wrong Blu-ray because it's just Boris Karloff on the cover and he looks <laughs> just like Robert Pattinson in The Lighthouse and so I thought that I had mistakenly <laughs> ordered The Lighthouse. <laughs> it turns out The Lighthouse is actually a remake of this movie. Oh, oh if only. Actually, you 
if you kept, if you did like the queerness, the comedy horror, like I, I would love to see like a modern remake of this film with those sensibilities, like outside of the pre-code era. With Willem Dafoe. <laughs> if we're talking remakes, Helena Bottom Carter needs to play Rebecca then, because that was uh, gonna be one of my notes. <laughs> would she still have a hunch though? Sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> She's got to be grotesque. <laughs> yeah. I could honestly see uh, like a, an old Tim Burton remaking this movie and doing oh. it right. Not not new Tim Burton because he doesn't maybe yeah. even keeping it in black and white. <gasps> That'd be fun. Like like pulling it Ed Wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I like it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, one of the important things, Trace, and I know you were kind of saying, oh, well, the title sounds a little bit generic, but one of the important things that people should know about this movie that, that they may not know is that this movie. I don't want to say almost single-handedly, but it uh, it plays a very strong contributing factor into all of the tropes of haunted house movies. This is the movie that started yeah. the idea of like going to a dark, scary house and finding weird creatures hidden in like the upstairs closet and that kind of stuff. And it's obviously playing on a gothic horror tradition, but this hadn't really been seen prominently in films before. Well, and what I actually, in terms of style, the things that I really noticed, so the, the work with shadows in the film is really well done. Mm-hmm. And about two thirds of the way through, I wrote, is there a lot of fisheye lens in this movie? Or is it just the quality of the film? It, it actually is intentional when you have kind of a blur effect, but I think it's mostly on the scenes with Rebecca. Yes, because mm-hmm. she's a messed up broad. <laughs> yeah, that's language through film, everyone. <laughs> All right, shall we dive into this? Let's dive into this 72-minute film. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see if the episode runs longer than the film we're talking about. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack. There, There honestly is, yeah. So stop me as we go. So after nearly being run off the road by a landslide during a storm, Philip, Raymond Massey, and Margaret Waverton, Gloria fucking Stewart. (laughs) I... Man, and she's also in the Invisible Man, by the way. She's the love yeah. interest in that. Um, she, okay. She's, I mean, she's kind of playing your typical like damsel in distress role um, the entire time, but she's gorgeous. I was getting heavy, heavy Faye Ray vibes mm. off of her. I was like, oh, is she gonna get swooped up by a giant ape later in this movie? <laughs> Would have fit right in if we're being honest. But this is our first, like, yeah, this is your heterosexuals that are just kind of normal. Going about their day on a rainy cliff um, with this really cool-looking rock slide, by the way. <laughs> okay, the rock slide looks great. Did you not think that they were just all dead immediately, though? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how is this car surviving this? Well, I, I, I imagine it's an effect, but there's a part like, there's a part where it doesn't even look like a slide. It looks like, like a part of the mountain is like being pushed out of itself. Um, and I I kind of, like... That I was getting the impression that maybe it was trying to hint at supernatural aspects that were going to be happening. Yeah, I think it's uh, just some good model work. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just to clarify, so these are our initial protagonists, but they are not normal. Because typically you would not be introduced to a couple who is bickering like this. So this right. is another example of a pre-code piece. Uh, you would not depict heterosexual marriage as being on the rocks in the opening moments of your film that would take the no we need civility and we need normalcy and that would come after the haze code i will say the blu-ray has a commentary with gloria stewart from the film's initial dvd release i have not listened to it but i've I've listened to excerpts from it and it's quite entertaining 
apparently she has like a photographic memory so she can remember all sorts of really interesting details it would be interesting to hear about her experience on that because she was one of the few like one of two americans amongst all these brits she uh, um she kind of says that they had kind of a hoity-toity thing going on. Um, yeah. Like, they kind of went off and did their own thing. They didn't really invite her to tea time. She didn't seem to have Aww. the best opinion of Karloff either. Neither did Whale, because the reason that Karloff is not in The Invisible Man is because he and Whale had a tiff, apparently fought all the time yeah. throughout the making of this film. And that's why he got Claude Rains instead. But, like, I guess during Bride of Frankenstein, like, they didn't even really speak to each other. I mean, it doesn't sound like this movie was a piece of cake for Karloff either. Like, the prosthetic effects, which look good, but aren't, like, amazing compared to a lot of other films that Karloff would eventually make. But I was shocked to hear that it took him hours in the makeup chair, like, before and after shooting to get into this. What's that scar? I, but it's just a scar. <laughs> Poor Karloff. Yeah, it's not as, like, design-heavy as his famous monsters you would say exactly right okay so that is our our married couple they're bickering in the front seat and meanwhile in the back seat we have their bachelor companion roger <laughs> penderel who is played by melvin douglas he's our other american actor on this set and due to this landslide and this ridiculous storm they must seek <laughs> refuge at the mansion of siblings of the the siblings femme <laughs> the house femme <laughs> yes <laughs> Do you think, I mean, really the house is femme too, because this is, the, the whole house is just like, it's like a prison for queer people. Yes, <laughs> correct. Do we think that the word, the, the name femme is intentional? Again, without having read the book, I don't know if it's the, the same name, but like, I, I couldn't, I mean, I don't, if it was a happy accident, that's awesome, but holy shit, femme. Right, because I don't know if that was like the ter same terminology that we're using now as it was, right. like, the book was written in like the 20s so i'm not sure mm -hmm. maybe a happy accident maybe or if or if it was something and whale caught on to it that might have just been like a fun in joke <laughs> yeah i'm also not sure but if you read the excerpt on this film in harry m benshoff's book he does suggest that they knew that it was like a double entendre for the queer community. Okay. So I, I don't know if that's him projecting back from the 90s when he wrote Monsters in the Closet, but he seems to think that femme is like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> so these siblings are Horace, who is played by Ernest Thessinger. And so he is a really close friend of James Whale. And James Whale specifically got him this part. And because of this part, then he decided to also... He leveraged that into the Bride of Frankenstein role, which, of course, is what makes him famous. Is he gay in real life? He was apparently bisexual. Okay. But he was, like, a noted dandy bisexual. Like, he would walk into parties and be like, who wants a good Rogering? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, let's talk about these siblings, because what, what I... <laughs> What I'm immediately struck by, of course, is this. You have the brother who is very effeminate, and then you have the sister who is not effeminate. <laughs> she is like the definition of Butch Dyke. Yes. So this is Rebecca. She's played by Ava Moore. So what do we think of Rebecca? Trace, you said you love her. Kate, what do you think? I'm obsessed. I love how mean, <laughs> I love how mean she is. I love how she... And the... One of the things to unpack in this is if we're reading her as deeply, deeply closeted because she is like by far the prudish, the most prudish of all of them, but is also just like 
watching Gloria Stewart change. And while she's watching her change, she's being like, all you think about is your your sexy legs and everything. And it's like, okay, so what's, uh, is there something you want to say? But she, she just keeps talking about all the impure things that were happening in the house and like thumping her Bible and everything. So there's, there's definitely a lot of repression going on there. Oh, yes. I lo- Hence I, the bitchiness. Yeah. I like that, though, because, I mean, and again, this is just from personal experience, but you know, you tend to find that the that someone who's queer who is repressing it or you know, has a like, severe internalized homophobia because yeah. of how they were brought up, um, with, you know, being told that queer is wrong, blah, 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 yeah. blah, they tend to be the most prudish of the two, right? Like, they have mm-hmm. to put these, like, really strict views on others, not even just in terms of queerness, but just in sexuality in general, you know? Like, you can't, you, sex is bad. You can't do this. That's what the foundation of America has been built on. <laughs> yeah. To the point in this film that it's like beds equal sex equal sin. No beds. No beds. <laughs> I love all the cutaways to her face every time her brother <laughs> says something. Like he, he's like, I like gin. And she's like, Rah. <laughs> <laughs> she just keeps making all these sounds and these faces. And I'm like, I'm living for you, bitch. She's also, she's wearing like Romany attire, at least what it looks like to me. So, I remember when I first watched this film, I thought that Horace was a butler because of the way that he's dressed. And then Mm -hmm. I thought that she was kind of a fortune teller sort of (laughs) traveling. Like They found each other on Craigslist, you know? Yeah, like (laughs) these two are so different. But yeah, there's there's definitely a hint of a foreign euro uh scare factor going on with rebecca like oh she shouldn't be trusted because she's hunchy she's repressed she's religious and also maybe a romany maybe a romany maybe an incestor maybe a murderer i'm sorry an incestor An incestuous being? I don't know. <laughs> she descended from the heavens to do incest. <laughs> I can make up words. It's fine. An incestor. Oh, Change dude. approved. I mean, the number of times that I have eaten my own tongue on this podcast and tried to pass it off like, yes, that's a word. What are you talking <laughs> about? Okay. So they are seeking refuge at the house femme, which pose. Get on that. <laughs> dude, right? <laughs> Clearly, those late 90s women from the Bronx have not watched the old Dark House. (laughs) So they are seeking refuge in this house from the storm. And Mr. Femme, so Horace, is okay with it all the way up until the point where he realizes that they have been cut off from the outside world. And the reason that he is so scared is because of Morgan, who is played by Boris Karloff. And he is their mute, heavy-drinking butler. And butler's kind of in quotation marks because he's somewhere between, like, a slave and, like, an a someone who might murder them all given the opportunity. Yeah, he, he does very little buttling in this film. Yeah, he, he basically presides over dinner and then he flips the table later. Yeah, I, I think Karloff had some difficulties with this role because he didn't see the point in having a role where he didn't speak. Honestly, a lot of the stories about Karloff on this film are just reminding me of Wesley Snipes and Blade Trinity. <laughs> but... But he's a very imposing presence, you know, like he's just he looks so big compared to everyone else on screen. Yeah, which is shocking because apparently he's actually not that big in real life. <laughs> yeah, when I realized Bella Lugosi's taller than him, it kind of blew my mind. Right? <laughs> he's like an inch taller than him. It's interesting how physical Carlos' performance is because by making him mute, you're acutely aware of the fact that he doesn't have a voice with which to use to like make his presence known. So he really is just hulking down throughout this movie, which is 
interesting. I mean, I I kind of like it. The other interesting thing that I find about this is that we don't know anything about Morgan. No, I, I still don't know how, I mean, again, if we're, if we're saying that the house femme is a house full of queers, I, I don't really know how much I love, like, associating queerness. I mean, his muteness, like, it's like a, it's a disability, you know? And so mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, it's queer in the literal sense as opposed to how we use it today. Right, like he's a queer figure because he has a disability. Right, exactly. So speaking of disabilities, uh, Rebecca is also partially deaf, which is where a substantial part of the comedy comes from early in the film. (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine Trey's doing a giant scowl, and that's what Rebecca is doing throughout this entire film. But she probably does it a lot better because she's she's on point. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) she's a professional. So uh, she outlines the details of her dead younger sister and then sexually accosts Margaret as Margaret is changing into dry clothes. And this is the scene you were referring to, Kate. And I I feel like we need to talk about the way that Whale shoots this. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can talk about a lot of things in this scene. Like, even just the implication. I mean, the implication is that she had an incestuous love for her younger sister, who she then murdered in her bed. Again pre-code people you would not be able to get away with this after the haze code comes into effect because even though it's hinted at you do not hint at incest in good quality motion pictures correct (laughs) (laughs) and that's that (laughs) what what do you mean how, how how he shoots this what do you mean So I love when Rebecca is talking to Margaret and she's going on her big rant about sin and, you know, she's touching the hem of the dress and saying, oh, this is this is cheap fabric. It'll rot. And then she touches Margaret's chest and she says, oh, this is skin. It'll rot, too. And it's it's great and hyperbolic. But there's a moment where Rebecca is sitting on the bed and she's just talking and it looks like we're seeing her through a mirror or we're seeing her reflected in a mirror but the mirror is foggy and then we're changing slightly the perspective so it feels like we're getting weird little insights into her psyche and I think that's part of the way that we can read Rebecca as a repressed queer figure because the shots through the mirror are revealing like oh these are the different elements that she's keeping trapped under the surface. I think on an initial watch I was just thinking again my literal brain I was thinking that she was just jealous of Margaret's youth and beauty it wasn't until doing a bit more of a deeper dive into the, the different readings of the film that I was like, oh, man, they really went there <laughs> with some of this shit. Yeah, it's a very strange scene, and I kind of, I mean, you really just have Gloria Stewart kind of sitting there, like, backing up, looking terrified the whole time, because Rebecca's presented as the monster initially. I really threw off the whole film. But no, I I, I agree, and th- and that's why that kind of, that's not fisheye, but whatever, like, the blur effect of the screen, where it's, like, the middle of the screen is crystal clear, but then the outer edges are, like, blurry. It's supposed to just kind of tip you off that something is just not right about this person, not, not correct, or queer, if you will. I just think it's a very splashy way of letting us know that, you know, however you want to read Rebecca, if you just want to read her as jealous, if you want to read her as repressed, if you want to read her as both, this is Will, like, honestly, five minutes into this movie saying, hey, heads up, something's not quite normal about all of this. And typically, like, you wouldn't tip your hand this early. And maybe it's just because we're talking about such a short runtime. But he's he's working very efficiently very early in the film. So Margaret does not take kindly to this. She's quite freaked out. She opens the window. (laughs) She got to open that damn window. (laughs) It's like a freaking typhoon. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm just imagining uh, James Whale off to the side and like yelling at props people or like assistants on set to be like, more water, more water, drench her. <laughs> See, you're saying that. I'm imagining all the wind machines. Like, okay, Gloria, just open this thing. It's going to be a little breeze and you're going to be fine. And then she just gets blown across the room. <laughs> So what you're saying is that this is an early drag race challenge. <laughs> okay, oh Gloria, God. all you have to do is open this window and then give us a pretty picture. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, I, okay, drag race does not lean heavily enough into horror. That's why I love when we actually get horror queens on the show. If they did one where they were reenacting scenes from classic queer cinema, like, oh, oh, I would die. I mean, I feel like now you're just going to get dragged for not watching the Boulay brothers because they do a lot of that kind of stuff damn it um no it is on my netflix queue but i have not watched it yet <laughs> yes but there there should always i mean i think one of the reasons why we're seeing uh, an increased connection between horror and drag culture is because people are starting to read the the performativity in drag culture really lends itself well to horror characters costuming and even like skits and stuff guess i'll just start watching that shit tonight then there you go <laughs> So as dinner is served downstairs, the siblings femme fight over the blessing before the dinner. And of course, this is where we get Horace divulging all about his insatiable love for gin. And we get this connection between him and Roger, who had earlier said, oh, I would kill for a good gin. And you, you really start to get the inkling that like, maybe these two might hook up before the end of this movie. <laughs> do, do potatoes have a significance at all? Because they are mentioned quite a bit. <laughs> yes they are the main course at dinner along with roast beef but i think i i took it almost as a way to get people to shut up like every these people just keep wanting to talk about the house and ask questions and horace is like have a potato stuff your mouth bowl of carbs did you notice how um rebecca was eating where she's just inhaling all of her food i think that was actually my favorite piece of physical comedy in this entire movie <laughs> now i have to go back and look at that because i never noticed oh it, it's almost like they sped her up because she looks like she's eating double or even triple time and like at one point the camera swings to somebody else's plate and they're literally just cutting pieces off the potato and it goes back to her and she's eaten half of her food <laughs> yeah it, it's like a, like a bam bam oh, well, i can't visualize it right now but yeah she's just like just like fork Mouth, fork, mouth, fork, mouth, fork, mouth, fork, mouth, fork, mouth, fork, mouth. She's hoovering it, for sure. Yes. <laughs> I mean, she's got a healthy appetite. Yeah. Can't blame her. If she can't be... Oh, I was going to get really crude there, so uh -oh. I'm just going to move on. I'm not going to lie. It looked like a good meal, though. It, looked, it, it all looked very... I'm also a sucker for, like... like I, The one thing I love about gothic horror films is, obviously, the production design. But this dining mm -hmm. room, I'm just like, ugh, I want that table. I want that table so bad. Mm -hmm. That table is giant. Mm-hmm. And the giant fireplace. Yes. Yeah. Admittedly, the ground floor of this house actually looked pretty good. I don't get a good sense of the upstairs because I, I don't understand how the geography works of the upper landing and where the bedrooms are and where the next set of stairs would hypothetically be. Mostly I had because the same I don't think thought, they actually. actually. Built it. <laughs> well, I don't think they actually built any of the other parts of the house. I think they just did the downstairs and then a bedroom. Mm -hmm. But it's... Uh, 
The downstairs is gorgeous. Yeah, so they have this dinner, and it seems like it's all going well, and then more people knock at the door, and we get another pair of wet travelers, and our newbies are portly William Porterhouse, played by Charles Lawton, and Chipper Gladys, who is played by Lillian Bond. So he's your other queer connection, because he's bisexual, but he was married to Elsa Lanchester, who of course played the Bride of Frankenstein. Yes, in real life, yeah. Wait, yes. Charles Lawton was bisexual? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so apparently he he uh, was very publicly, like, I think a lot of people assume that they had a marriage of convenience and that they were both queer, oh. but it, it definitely seems like he was a, a very confirmed bisexual and he was well, quite open about it. And of course, I mean, you know, you know how important it is to have kids. They never had children, and people always assumed it was because he was, you know, a, the whole marriage of convenience thing. Um, but he actually came out publicly and said no. I mean, like, or like, I think no, in her biography. I'm sorry, she wrote her autobiography. Um, she had a, a botched abortion when she was doing um, uh, like burlesque shows before she like went into like film acting, mm-hmm. and that's why she couldn't have kids. Dang. One other notable thing is that Charles Lawton directed only one single film in his entire career. It is mm-hmm. Night of the Hunter, which is arguably one of the most significant American films of all time. So if people haven't seen it, it's mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous film noir. Trace, you I wouldn't... know, I was like, you just said the word. <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing. It features probably one of the most sinister characters ever, because it's basically about a man who marries women and then tries to and then kills them off so that he can collect their inheritance and so he does this like the film opens with him like driving super happy because he just murdered a woman and collected all of her money and then he meets a new woman and he immediately plots to move in on her and her kids don't like him so he basically kills her and then plots to kill them because only they know where the money is so the whole movie is him trying to murder a pair of children. Didn't they just announce a remake for that, too? They did, yeah. Okay, yeah. Th- I'd never heard of it until that was announced, so I guess I'll have to watch that shit, too. Thanks. It's a terrifying performance. It's it's really good. Yeah. And, like, the film is a masterpiece of direction. Hmm. So kudos right. to Charles Lawton. He's, he's actually quite fun in this movie as well, although... Mm-hmm. He, he's a bit of a cipher. Like, you don't quite know what to make of him. Th- but that's important, though. He comes with this gorgeous woman who looks like Jennifer Goodwin. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> but he has no interest in her sexually. So that way, when the romance between her and um, and Pinderel comes into play, you expect there to be this kind of, like, jealousy between them. And right. there's not... I, the implication for me is that his character is also gay. But obviously, that's not, like... That's not stated outright. You are right, because part of what's being done here is that the film, and I say film in quotation marks because, of course, this is, again, the pre-code and James Will playing the system. So they have this excuse where uh, after dinner, everybody's sitting around the fire and Porterhouse literally talks about the reason that he got rich is because he used to have a wife and then she died by suicide because she was bullied by rich people. And as a result, he decided to become rich and you know mock them and so on so that cues you to say oh well he can't possibly be gay because he had a wife which of course a we know that does not make you not gay or not queer but it also 
you're like, oh, okay, well, that's also a story, because why is he not interested in this woman? Why is he hiring her? Sure, he could be lonely. This is the double entendre, too, that you mentioned earlier, where he he basically says he likes people to think he's ever so gay, Mm -hmm. which that double entendre was intentional. Right. And of course, if people don't know, old-timey gay means happy and having fun, but it also means gay. I think it still means that in Britain. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just like fag means cigarette, but that's weird. There you go. Oh, you Brits. What's up with you? <laughs> okay, so they're sitting around. Yeah, so we, we get a little bit more information. This is where we find out that Gladys is a bad course girl, but she's quite a good escort. Of course, they don't use that language, but the implication <laughs> is there. This is another thing that would not pass in the post-Hays Code world. You can't just have a chorus girl candidly talking about being an escort. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, oh, no, I was going to say something inappropriate. I mean, this is our podcast. This is what I was going to talk about her loose pussy. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Would you like to elaborate? I just imagine it's loose from all that chorus singing. <laughs> but it's like her vagina It's like, like an Ace Ventura situation, but with... But with her vagina. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. With her front butt. <laughs> that's a Jennifer's body quote. Diablo Cody wrote it, not me. <laughs> sure. I'm sure yeah. that's what James Whale intended when he made this. <laughs> yes. I'm I'm imagining a very like prim and proper James Whale saying, talk out of your pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do like this character quite a bit. I I find her like as much as I like Gloria Stewart in this film, um, this actress Lillian Bond, I find this character a bit more compelling because she, and maybe it's because she's essentially an escort or a prostitute, but she's just more, like she just has like a stronger will to me. She's more agency than Gloria Stewart's character, who's kind of just like, Ugh. well, she's a, she's just yeah. more fun, right? Well, yeah, she and Porterhouse just, like, burst through those doors. They don't even ask, like, can we stay here? Like, it's the total opposite of the the previous yes. trio. They're like, oh, dear, please, it's raining. And they're just like, so this is happening now. Is that dinner? <laughs> like, it's it's a, it's a shift. It's it's an energy that they didn't have yet. And Very I will true. say, I did not, again, knowing nothing about this film, because I watch it mostly blind, I didn't know that we were going to get more characters into this film. <laughs> no, yeah, because it is such a short film, and then it feels like we're... We're steadily on the way there to, like, exposing the weird things that are happening in this house. And then all of a sudden we have two new characters that we have to re... It's almost like we restart the film. But you're right, Kate. They bring so much energy to this film. I almost felt like I didn't realize how... I don't want to call them Debbie Downers, but the Wavertons (laughs) are boring. Which I think is also by design. Like, these are our protagonists. They're boring as fuck. Well, there's even a part, and there's some good humor in this one, because you know, this is like, you know, everyone's together doing their own thing before we all split up. And I th- maybe it's Rebecca that does this, but someone goes, well, there's no accounting for taste, you know? And she just goes, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do love that. Yeah, I think it's Porterhouse uh, who mentions that. Yes. And that's just supposed to say, yeah, she ain't putting up with his shit at all. It's so good. I, I love that. Horace tries to be a congenial host like he's faking it because I think he likes the idea of having other people around in the hopes that Morgan won't attack them (laughs) and Rebecca who is obviously the master of this house does not give two shits about these interlopers well I was gonna say though Horace is pretty chill for you know having their er, brother locked upstairs no he isn't he doesn't want to go up to the second floor Trace (laughs) 
Because <laughs> that's literally what happens is that uh, Pendril and Gladys sneak out to get booze because, of course, they do. <laughs> and they wind up hanging out in the car and they're just kind of gone for a large middle section of this film because they're just hanging out, getting to know each other, getting drunk. Meanwhile, everybody else is stranded here in this weirdo house. The lights go out and everybody's like, oh, it's fine. We'll just get candles or a lamp. And Rebecca's like, sure. Why don't you go up to the second floor and get a lamp? And she she knows that Horace doesn't want to go up there. And even when Philip offers to go with him, Horace is like, mm, I'd really rather not. I do love Philip's line where he's like, I'm assuming the lamp isn't heavy enough to where two people need to carry it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good comedy about that lamp. Oh, trust me, we'll come back to a vagina joke around Miss Gladys later. Uh, yeah, so basically, uh, Philip goes to collect this lamp alone, and at this point we get our first hint that there is something weird happening upstairs because he sees food in the hall and noises behind a door. Bum, bum, bum! <laughs> and remember, this th- this is all new to cinema audiences, so they're not used to seeing these kinds of, like, oh, there's weird things, people are being separated, and odd events are happening around the house. That, that's the thing, you know, when watching these movies, like, I mean, I, 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 these movies, meaning something, like, from this time period, like, I... Even in the 70s, like, you know, you, you could show someone Halloween today and they'll be like, if they grew up with, you know, modern horror, they're going to be like, well, this is really boring. It's triply so for a film like this when it's like, okay, you may not find this scary now, but like back in the 30s, this was something like people hadn't seen this shit before and it was scary. And the one thing that I think this film does exceptionally well is the mood of the film. Even though there's comedy present, there's a lot of things that are just, like, really, really, really unsettling. And while they have probably lost their effect over time because we're used to seeing so many horrific things, not only in film, but in the news, you just have to try to, like, put yourself in a 1930s mindset. And that's just hard for some people to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, there was one really funny joke, too, when they the wind, something happens, and they go, probably the wind, and then I think, I, I need to write down who says these things, but they're like, no, it wasn't, I know the wind when I see it. <laughs> Yeah, I I actually found that I was missing quite a few jokes because they're they're not delivered like jokes in this film. Like mm-hmm. it it treats itself almost like a horror film, but the dialogue is often quite whip smart, but it goes by quickly because they're not pausing to let you have a laugh. So a lot of the times I'd be like, did I just hear that? And then we've already moved on. Well, that's why I think, though, it's a film that would reward multiple viewings. Because now that you know, now that I know what's going on in the film, I can watch it and, like, catch these moments of comedy. But you're right. You know, it's not like something today where it's like there's a joke and then the camera, like, holds. Mm-hmm. As, as if, yeah, it's waiting for the audience to laugh. <laughs> yeah, pause for laughter. Yeah. So Rebecca demands that Porterhouse go upstairs to close Margaret's window because, of course, the window has been open this whole time and (laughs) presumably the room is almost flooded. So that means that uh, Margaret is left alone downstairs. And at this point, she gets accosted by a drunk Morgan. And I won't lie, these scenes are a little bit uncomfortable to watch, even in a contemporary setting, because it's just so obviously this woman is here to be an object who will be threatened by a monster. Like clearly something is not quite right with Morgan. And again, we don't get any insight as to what has gone on with him. Um, I mean, I think the the secret message of this film trace just to go back to the book that you mentioned, not really seeing the connection, but mm-hmm. I, I've, 
read it as oh the regular people who stumble into this old dark house are the people who are like returning from the war front and they think that they're all fine and what they've come back to is actually madness and incest in a world turned upside down and Morgan seems really reflective of that where there's like a veneer of civility and normality but the minute that you get locked inside with him during a storm and he gets a few drinks in him shit gets real they do very little to, like, avoid Morgan hitting the bottle. Like, the booze is just readily available for him. They're like, oh, well, oh God, it's happening again. <laughs> like, yeah. If he gets that violent. <laughs> <laughs> you know he's a, he's a problematic drunk. Maybe you should try to hide the bottle a little yeah. bit better. <laughs> oh, but Horace loves his gin so much. Yeah. <laughs> I like a good gin too, but I mean, it also doesn't turn me into somebody who punches a window when I see a woman walk by it. <laughs> I did love that scene. Gladys was not super bothered. I mean, she was bothered by it for a little bit, but then she was like totally fine. Yeah, it definitely seemed like she used it as an excuse to be like, okay, I'm I'm a little bit startled, but oh, if this means I get to climb inside this car with this man now. Yeah, sure. she went to go, she, she needed to go fall on Pendrel's dick. More or less, yeah. That's what the implication is. Yes. So, meanwhile, Margaret's getting accosted, and this is when Philip returns with the lamp. So, she runs up to Philip. He ends up trying to battle Morgan, but he's totally ineffectual because, of course, (laughs) uh, you know, no commentary on masculinity in this film at all with how ineffectual (laughs) Philip is. So, he ends up throwing the lamp at Morgan, and this knocks Morgan out, and he's down for a little bit. I kind of like that, though. It's like the uselessness of heterosexuality. Like, your manliness, A, you're not manly, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. B, your straightness won't save you now. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this movie is actually, I mean, I was obviously being very sarcastic that this movie is a very critical takedown of masculinity. Like, there are arguably no good men in this movie until the end when Pendrel confirms his heterosexuality and proposes marriage. Do y'all know if Whale presented feminine? I don't. I always got the impression he was buttoned up, but kind of prim and proper. I know that his lover, Lewis, was very much against the idea of queer readings of Whale's films Mm -hmm. because he didn't like the idea of Whale being seen as a queer director. Which is an interesting take because, I mean, obviously, as queers nowadays, we we like to do these kinds of readings. And I imagine that's the time period, though. Yeah, I mean, this was even up until, like, I guess this would have been even after Wales passing in the 50s. So No, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, it, it still wasn't really good to be out in Hollywood in, in the 70s, you know? Right. I took it as, like, he was trying to preserve Wales' integrity. Like, he was a director. He wasn't a queer director, which I can appreciate. And I do think it has something to do with the politics of the time. But I just thought it was a little bit funny because we can so easily see the queer elements in Wales' films. Like, even if he wasn't setting out to make queer films, it still does come out. That could just be from his passions and his, especially, like, his collaborations with, um... Thessinger? Yes, thank you, with Thessinger, because, like, they hit it off right away, and they communicated a lot, of, like, and, like, shared, like, their kind of humor, so that might kind of present itself as queerness. You're, you know, you're right, Kate, because it's also just a matter of being, if you're a queer f- creator, 
even if you're intentionally injecting queerness in your film or not, like there's still things that are probably queer that are going to get put into your film. Just like when, when we as queer people watch films that aren't explicitly queer or again, with no intention of queerness whatsoever, we'll see queer things in the, the, the media we're consuming because that's just where we're coming yeah. from. Mm-hmm. So I get that. It's a little bit weird to say, and this will probably sound very unusual to people who don't self-identify as queer, but like it, it's, something that you can't help because it's a facet of who you are Mm -hmm. like your your sexual identity is for better or worse depending on how comfortable you are with it it's part of your identity so i think it would only make sense that for whale he's going to inject some of this into it like i i find his sense of humor to be very queer like the types of characters that he's using here are very queer and then of course he's literally casting his queer friends in this movie Mm -hmm. like i I just can't help but think it's a very queer film as a result and he would continue to use the same crew most of the people that worked on this also worked on his other three big horror films for universal just kind of hilarious to me i'm like these these queers just invaded Universal's lot and made a bunch of super gay <laughs> horror movies in the 30s and 40s. Like, mm-hmm. it's hilarious to me. So this is where Pendril and Gladys hang out in the car a little bit longer. They get closer and then they eventually come inside and we get this really unusual scene where Gladys half apologizes and asks for permission from Porterhouse to love Pendril because apparently they're in love now. And then she leaves... <laughs> And Pendrel scoots closer to Porterhouse to the point that they are sitting so intimately on this couch. And Pendrel looks like he's asking his father, like the the father of his betrothed, like, I'm going to marry her tomorrow. Okay, that's all well and good. But did y'all catch this brilliant piece of comedy when Porterhouse asks her, oh, so you got your feet wet? And she goes, yes, Bill. And that wasn't all I. And then she gets cut off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's her wet pussy. Which is hilarious because, yeah, you're just like, okay, we already get the insinuation. Like, you're not talking about wet feet. Like, yes, they went out into the rain, but we all know that you're talking about getting plowed in the back of the car in the shed. Escandalo. <laughs> It's just, it's so funny that it's like, we do the insinuation, and then we cut off when we were actually going to literally say, and I also had sex. You were right when you said this earlier, this would not fly in about 10 years. No. <laughs> Don't be talking about your wet pussy post-taste code. <laughs> okay, so whatever, they're boring, they're maybe going to get engaged, let's move on to the good stuff. Yeah. So upstairs, Philip and Margaret stumble upon, and we, we knew this because Rebecca mentioned earlier that their father was upstairs. So they go into this bedroom, and they come across Sir Roderick Femme, who is the patriarch of the house. And this is some interesting casting because Sir Roderick Femme is played by Elsbeth Dungeon under the pseudonym John Dungeon. Kate, yeah. <laughs> enlighten us about this place. So, so I like was obsessed with this casting choice as soon as I saw this and was like digging around the internet trying to find, I'm like, why, why did this happen? And so the most clear answer I found was that uh, David Lewis actually mentions in James Whale's biography that the character's supposed to be like 102 years old and he couldn't find anyone that looked that old. So he just cast this old stage actress that he knew. But she was like in her 60s. She's not 102. (laughs) But he also just, he just thought it was funny. Like that's the (laughs) thing about like his, his queerness and his humor kind of melding together that like, we'll never know, unfortunately, if this was like 
a casting decision of I I want to break the barriers and gender swap and do this and cast this woman as a man as a statement or something like I think he just thought it was funny and he also like played a prank and didn't tell any of the actors until afterwards. Oh my god, that's he was great. like he like pulled off her wig and stuff and was like <laughs> <laughs> get it <laughs> like. <laughs> Well, because she's wearing makeup, right? Like, it's, yes. it's old-age makeup. But, yes, and, and a fake nose. The way that her facial hair was, like, I was kind of getting, and maybe the, this is, like, not, obviously not intentional, but, like, I was kind of getting, like, old Asian sage vibes from this, from the look of this character. You mean, like, a bit of Fu Manchu kind of deal? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it would have been of the time, or it might have just been, like, this is makeup that we had available to us because other people were doing this kind of character on the lot mm-hmm. um i'll tell you what i got i got Ooh. some tilda swinton in suspiria 2018 vibes from this <laughs> <laughs> to the point that i was like wait is this literally what luca was doing like is he referencing this iconic queer text in a very queer reimagining of suspiria because if you think about it like that like so much of Suspiria is predicated on femininity and of course that's why it's so weird that we get this one male character but of course it's played by Tilda Swinton but it's not played by Tilda Swinton in the credit she she has a male pseudonym just like Elspeth Jim did oh yeah so I I don't know I mean I'm with you Kate I think this is a huge joke this is some weird old drag and he was just like the excuse that I couldn't find an actor you're like, well, why didn't you just cast a man and put him in old drag? <laughs> like, because this is funnier. Because it's funnier. It's, it just, it's so camp. I, I love it. it. I, I bet he was a delight. I bet he was yeah. just a delight to work with, unless you were Boris Karloff. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because Boris Karloff was probably saying, I, "I'm making a serious movie here. I need to put on all this makeup." And James Whale's like, "Bitch, get with the joke." <laughs> That's kind of the thing, though, right? I mean, like this film is filled with so many loud characters. That it it juxtaposed with the horror-ish mood of the film, it's just it it it's so bizarre and unreal, but it just makes it all the more interesting to watch and kind of it's definitely more entertaining. But this scene kind of is exposition the scene. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. So this is where we learn that there's been a bunch of tragedies and madness that has befallen the family, and this is where we get our cue that there's one absent femme family member. The eldest son, Saul, who is played by Brember Wills, who is locked upstairs, but will inevitably be set loose by Morgan if they don't uh, prevent Morgan from doing so. So at this point, Philip and Margaret, they race downstairs to warn the others, but of course it's already too late. And Morgan isn't quite done. He attempts to attack Margaret again. So Philip and Porterhouse have to uh, wrestle him into the kitchen. I think half of, I have half of my notes are from this these last fifteen minutes of the film. <laughs> like, it is insane. There's a lot that goes on. Yeah, I love the reveal though because like Saul's hand comes down the rail, mm-hmm. and then Morgan steps down. And while all of this is going on, Saul's hand just stays there <laughs> yeah. for the entire like <laughs> battle scene. To the point that I actually thought that it was a mistake and they had a prosthetic hand that mm-hmm. they had accidentally left on the stairwell because you see it and it's very clear and nothing happens. It's like 
the longest con in this movie. I think it might be what Kate was saying. I mean, like, because they didn't have to do that. But I bet Whale was just like, oh, that'd be kind of funny if he was just like, his hand was there the whole time and he was <laughs> listening to all this happen. Yeah. He's just waiting to make his grand entrance, right? <laughs> yes. Because he's gay. Because he, he's a fucking diva. <laughs> That's who Saul is. This is like Saul's big entrance, right? He, Saul is a diva, though. Honestly, I was a bit so-so on the film up until Saul. And then I was like, okay, Saul, you won me over. <laughs> so uh, so we're terrified. We've heard of Saul. He's a madman. He can't be trusted. So Pendrel locks Gladys and Margaret in a cupboard in oh. the back of the room. I, so he goes, hide in the closet. And then Gladys goes, <laughs> no. All right. Like... <laughs> It's such an about face, like, in the span of a split second. And I, I again, rewound it because I was like, what? Yeah. I mean, Gladys gets, I feel like her line delivery lines up better with the comedy than some of the other people's who maybe played a bit drier. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she does it, it's very, it's quite broad. And you can see, like, oh, yes, this is comedy. I meant to laugh at this part. So they're in the cupboard. And <laughs> Saul begins to creep downstairs. And at this point, it's just him and Pendrel for quite a lengthy period of time. It's an odd choice, right, though? Like, Pendrel essentially then becomes our de facto protagonist of the film by the end of it. Oh, this is where he's starting to step up towards masculinity and heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he has to become the hero so that he can win over the damsel by the end of the film. So Saul comes down, and initially he actually seems kind of normal. So he tries to befriend Pendrel by saying, I'm not mad. I just know that they murdered my younger sister, so they've locked me up. And you're like, oh, maybe this is the about face in the film, and it's going to be revealed that they've locked up the only sane person in this house. Which I kind of would have liked more, probably. Oh, I disagree. I like the turn on it, because you it makes you question it, and then it says, oh no, you were right all along. He's crazy. <laughs> So the switch happens as soon as Saul finds out that the doors are locked. And at this point, he picks up a knife from the table that's been overturned because, of course, Morgan didn't go down without a fight when they hustled him out of the room. So he picks up a knife from the floor and he begins to demand that Pendrel stay with him. So he doesn't want to be left alone. He wants this man. (laughs) Now, watching this conversation... I, this is the best moment of suspense in the film for me. So yeah. we have Saul holding this big-ass knife. Like, it looks like an Arabian sword type thing. Mm-hmm. And while Pendril is talking to him, he keeps putting his hand out. Like, further and further. Like, he almost wants to, like, grab Saul and, like, hold his hand. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy's got a fucking knife, dude. Don't put your hand out. He's going to stab it. Yeah, you keep waiting for him to get the knife in the hand. And he never mm-hmm. does. It's uh, it it's quite satisfying as a, like, you think you know what's going to happen and you're waiting for it and you wait for it and then it doesn't happen. So that's no. nice. So Pendril does eventually try to get away. He ends up uh, falling back and sort of like right up against the fireplace. And this is when Saul throws the knife at his head. He then beats him with a chair. And then when Pendril is kind of down for the count for a moment, he runs upstairs, Saul does, and he sets the curtains on fire. Because, of course, he's also a pyromaniac. Gay chaos? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll pull up our friend Benchoff. Basically just says, um, Benchoff goes on to say, Saul is best understood as a repressed homosexual as theorized by Freudian psychoanalysis. Paranoid to the point of trying to eradicate the unacceptable object of desire, Pendril. 
Saul and David, uh, which is the biblical story that he goes on about for quite a bit, is one of the more homoerotic male couples in the Bible. I'm sure you have a right. lot of religious fanatics who uh, would, would disagree with that statement, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, that if you if you look at Morgan and Saul as a queer couple, which is how most people tend to read the end of the film... It's a little bit bittersweet in terms of like a kind of kill your gaze, but it also feels like a bit of a momentous moment. But it's fascinating to me that we we get a sense that Saul is is queer well before we get that impression from Morgan because Morgan spends the entire movie pawing after Margaret. So I didn't read Morgan as a queer figure like outside of the the queer sort of disability. He's odd. He's not normal in that sort of way. But it could explain the obsession of why he wants to free Saul, like why he's the only one that wants that and why they're afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why he drinks so much, because he's mm-hmm. also repressing his own queerness with alcohol. Oh, I, like, absolutely. I agree 100% with both of you. I do think that it's just fascinating that we don't see Morgan as a queer figure until the end, and then we get to revise all of his actions from earlier in the film. Whereas Saul, it's like, he fucking slinks onto screen. And he's basically like, (laughs) so, how are you? (laughs) You're just like, oh, okay. Oh, it's kind of like an Eartha Kitt vibe, huh? I mean, again, this is pre-Eartha Kitt, but that's the vibe I'm getting from Saul. It's a little bit. Like, he's very slinky and cat-like. I mean, the the actor, Brember Wills, is, uh, he's a bit of a shorter man, so he's... He's also using his physicality in an interesting way. Like the the performance is primarily erudite because he's very well spoken, mm-hmm. unlike a lot of the other members of the femme family who are kind of monosyllabic or they're they're clipped. Like Horace's, uh, he speaks in kind of like witty little quips that you would expect. Whereas then we've got Saul, who seems very capable of stringing together a sentence or two, but he ends up being the most dangerous character out of all of them, which is interesting so he has lit the second story on fire pendril wakes up he runs upstairs they have another battle they end up breaking through the banister and both falling over the edge so they are now down for the count there's a lot of people who get knocked out for brief periods of time in this movie so gladys and margaret come out because they hear all of the commotion this is when morgan has found his way back out of the kitchen so he stands in their way and he refuses to let them move until he hears the name Saul, and then as soon as he hears that, the storm breaks, Morgan rushes to Saul's side, he cradles his head, it's very intimate, it's very affectionate, and, you know, it's it's almost sad. He picks up the body and he carries him upstairs soundlessly. That's the last we see of these characters. It's a sad ending for these characters. I mean, again, Saul is ostensibly the villain of the film, or at least that's how he's, because again, he's your third act reveal. If you read them as queer, it's just this kind of like sad, forbidden love that can never be. You also wonder if maybe Morgan is mute, not because of a, like a natural disability, but maybe if he was made that way. Like someone hurt him to the point where he became mute. I actually read a piece as part of Gailey Dreadful's Pride columns. So it was C.H. Newell did a piece 
that talks about queer gothic resistance and he addresses some of the issues with masculinity in the film and he ends up comparing this film to Rocky Horror Picture Show which is why I made the joke off the top that it seems like Rocky Horror is actually very indebted to this movie Mm -hmm. but he mentions uh, C.H. Newell does in part of the article that he like Saul is this interesting character because his pyromania is almost used as a combative force against heteronormativity. So he wants to burn the family home down, like burning the femme family with his queer flame. But he also ties Saul's imprisonment to Jane Eyre and gothic horror. But then at the end, he says that Morgan's uh, muteness may actually be like, it's the muting of queer sexual desire. So mm. it's reflective of his inability to speak his truth about how he feels about Saul and who he really is. All right. Yeah. I can't put that any better. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, this, this is why sometimes the written word is helpful. Yay, books. Yay, books. <laughs> okay, so our villains are ostensibly vanquished, and all that we're left with now are our boring-ass heroes. So... <laughs> Gladys cries because she realizes the pendrel is still alive, and then we Wait, kind of... But y- y'all got that connection, right? That he's alive, he's alive, I tell you? Yeah. Trace, do you want to make it clear, just in case people don't get it? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, Gladys yelling, he's alive, alive, I tell you, is, of course, a reference to Frankenstein, and Frankenstein himself can be viewed as a queer monster. But the difference is, this is an inversion of that. What we have here is that Pendrel has been reborn into a heterosexual union with Gladys, who has then vowed to make him a quote-unquote useful person. (laughs) Yep. Thank God he stepped his pussy up. So in the morning, Horace bids them goodbye, uh, because, of course, even though all of this has happened, (laughs) Rebecca has still not let them sleep in beds, so they all had to sleep in chairs. I did enjoy Horace's goodbye, so happy to meet you. Yeah, like, the way he just descends the stairs so casually, like, nothing happened that night. Like, well... (laughs) Yeah, we haven't been through a traumatic incident together or anything. And also, like, what the fuck happened to Horace throughout the entire climax? (laughs) He and Rebecca literally fuck off and just leave these house guests to handle their brothers. (laughs) Well, he's afraid. I mean, we know Horace is afraid of them. Rebecca, she just doesn't give a fuck. I I think Rebecca is literally like, "Mm, I'll just come out and see, like, who's dead in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) She's in her bed. Yeah, she's probably off masturbating to images of Margaret. (laughs) Or her dead sister. Or her dead sister. Yeah. <laughs> Spin off. Spin off. I mean, really, isn't this the the Rebecca Gothic horror adaptation that we're really hoping for? Like, oh, oh yeah. Like isn't the she basically Mrs. Danvers? Mrs. Danvers? So yeah. I've read Rebecca. I had to read it for school, but I've never seen Hitchcock's film, and I cannot wait to cover it one day on this podcast. Oh. Aww. You know what? We're probably more likely to do the terrible... Well, maybe it won't be terrible. Maybe it'll be great, but there's a new one coming out on Netflix in the end of the year. Why wouldn't you do the Hitchcock one? Because we have a tendency to not do the good original. We do the terrible (laughs) sequel or the awful remake instead. (laughs) Yeah, so Horace gaily bids them adieu, have a great day, and Woozy Pendrel proposes to Gladys. He honestly doesn't even look like he knows where he is. He's covered by head bandages and... She's super excited, and meanwhile, Porterhouse is just snoring as if to undercut, oh god, this boring heterosexual love affair, let me sleep through it. I mean, did y'all, like, buy any of this shit? Like, he's known this woman for less than 12 hours. I mean, I I feel like we've all seen romantic comedies where people meet and immediately fall in love, but 
this seems like it's actively making fun of that trope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you said, like, this is James, James Whale being like, I think this is what heterosexuality is, right? Like, Yeah, like, what is the least interesting outcome I can have? Marriage. Okay, <laughs> let's have these two straight people go off and do that. I mean, could you say it's a product of war, too, as well? Like, rushing into marriage and yes. finding... Because, like, he is a soldier. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's found his good woman, and now he can immediately settle down because he knows she's the keeper. Yeah. And who doesn't want a woman who can play a tune out of her vagina? <laughs> Oh, God. This is how we get canceled every week. <laughs> I just am imagining <laughs> the sa- that sound coming out of a vagina. <sighs> I mean, you don't even know what a vagina looks like, so please tell us more. This is turning into a family guy joke or something. <laughs> Very much so, yes. We have to cut away, but show the actual thing happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The vagina just has eyes and is doing like a skit on the stage. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, James Whale. Yeah. <laughs> He's oh just God. rolling over in his grave like, this is why I didn't want queer analysis of my goddamn films. It's okay. I'm editing this. I'll make it. I'll make this all sound real smart. <laughs> yes, make us sound reverent. We appreciate his sacrifices. And, yes. okay, if we're being honest, though. I don't love the old dark house. Like, I don't know that I would want to revisit it in the near future, Mm -hmm. but I do think it's a surprisingly fun and like, it's a, yeah, it's a surprising film to me because I didn't expect that it was going to have this playfulness or this subversiveness. Yeah. It's by no means my favorite whale or anything, but it, like you were saying, it's, it's just fun. It was it was fun to watch with the AC crank to pretending it's it's cold out when it's not. Uh, <laughs> and it's a hangout movie. Okay. Well, I think that's going to close out this film. So any lasting thoughts on it before we uh, move into housekeeping? I guess just finding a way to talk about how we see ourselves in these things, these older films especially. There's a difference between like, Oh, yeah, I think that was great representation. It obviously isn't, and we talked about that. But I think with this, it's definitely more intentional of, like you were saying, with James Whale playing the system and, you know, finding ways to insert queerness into the narrative. Because there's other, there's a lot of horror films from the 30s with subtext like that, and it's always very, like, predatory or demonizing. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that scene, the scene with with Rebecca almost reminds me of Dracula's daughter, if you've seen that, like it's just, especially, yeah, especially like rampant lesbianism in in classic horror films, like it's always very predatory. And oh yeah, I guess I should just like reiterate that it's kind of just more important to point out and analyze, like we have, and not. Just, I don't know what I'm trying to say. You can no, yeah, because I, I think the temptation is is like as modern viewers, and Trace, you hinted at this earlier. Like it's sometimes hard to appreciate what an older film is doing because you've yeah. seen the trajectory over history, right? So it doesn't always feel fresh. It doesn't always feel representative. But I think it's not just important to think about the context that a film was being made in, but also, like, if you were a closeted queer in this day and age, if you went to this film, you would see yourself represented on the screen. And hopefully you would be able to, to parcel out this idea that, oh, okay, well, if you're, if you're a lesbian in this world, then you must be predatory. And if you are gay, then you're either a killer or you're mad or you're Horus who, you know, has no function. But it's important that I think 
these kinds of queer subtexts, they existed because you couldn't actually have, like, you couldn't make Pendril gay in this movie because it just yeah. simply wouldn't get made. Like, it's a it's a two hundred thousand dollar film in nineteen thirty two. This is a big budget film. I like the fact that you know we talk about how queer horror is having a moment right now, which mm-hmm. I. I think it's slightly disingenuous because I think what it is is that other people have finally caught up to where we've been for a long time. And it's like mainstream people are starting to recognize, oh, wow, queer horror, that's a thing. But, you know, we can go back to a movie that's almost 90 years old Mm -hmm. and say, here's a bunch of queer horror shit. Like, this is not a new thing. I'm even loath when the article to promote this episode comes on Bloody Disgusting, because as we've discussed many a time, people always like to say that we're reaching and blah, blah, blah. And I can guarantee that we're even going to get some people that have seen this film, but they're going to be like, y'all, it was the 30s. They were innocent. Y- y'all are just, they, nothing's really going, there's no subtext <laughs> here. Y'all are reaching. Ma, ma, ma. It's like Poland. There are no gays in the 30s. What are you talking about? <laughs> it, but, but, that, but that's the thing that we have to face. And also, look, that, that's why... We don't cover a lot of old films on this podcast a lot, and that's something that we're trying to remedy by at least, you know, doing one every now and then, because y'all, for the, I mean, for total transparency, they don't get as many listens. People don't tend Mm. to, like, listen to our episodes on older films because they just don't want to do it, and now I'm kind of in the mindset where I'm like, fuck that. I I don't care about the downloads anymore, you know? I, I want to do this because knowing about queer history it's like you know you'll watch something on drag race and Derek barry doesn't know what stonewall was you know so <laughs> oh sweet baby guy if you if you're gonna be a queer horror fan you know, I'm, I'm, I'm we're not here to gatekeep but i think that exploring things pre-1970 is worthwhile and that's something that honestly i haven't been good at in my life and so i'm glad that i'm we're doing this now and that you know we're gonna make a point to cover more films that are older because th- while the films may not be as quote-unquote exciting or thrilling as something that comes out today, James Whale suffered pr- uh, for a lot of his life because he chose to live out and proud in the fucking 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I think it's important for all of us to know that and acknowledge that sacrifice that he made because his life was that. I mean, it was great and he he gave us some great works of art. But it was also a sacrifice so that we could be where we are today. And that we that queer horror could be a thing, like it is today. It, it makes me sad sometimes to think about, but I'm also like, you know, like, imagine growing up, living in that time period, you know, it would be terrible. I'm sure in 100 years, it'll be better for people now. They'll look back at us and be like, oh my god, in 2020, that must have been terrible to be out and gay. I mean, I... I hope that what will happen is that in the future, people can look back on this time and be like, wow, look at the represent, look at the representation of trans characters. And we'll have moved that needle far enough that we can say, oh, wow, we've got like a bunch of fully fleshed out trans characters who can be both the heroes and the villains. And it doesn't have to be made a big deal of. But yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of recognizing because it doesn't sound like James Whale had a bad life. I'm sure he probably would have loved to have continued making yeah. movies, but he had a man who loved him and he didn't have to hide who he was. I'm sure that didn't mean that he had an easy life, though. And the fact that he could produce stellar texts that we can watch 90 years later and still have a fucking blast talking about with a mercifully brief 70-minute runtime. Like, <laughs> James Whale is living his best life in my eyes. Hell yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Okay, so now we've ended on that really happy note. <laughs> there we go, a happy way to end. Well, no, and just let's just say that's why it's good that I think you're using the platform to branch out into older, older horror, even if it might not get as many views. Like, yeah, 
I think that's a good thing. I think it's not, little... not that you don't get listens. No, but no, just that no, 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 you know, no, it's no. educational. <laughs> I think that's something early on too. I was really afraid of. when we were programming stuff in the first six months of our of our existence. I was just like, I don't want to do that because we did like one uh, older film and it got like a fourth of the downloads. Is like something else that wow. we've done. And so, but now I'm just like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, the mission statement is just to is to continue to try to broaden people's horizons and our own. To be honest, I mean, it's not like we program these films and it's like we've seen all of them. Sometimes we program mm-hmm. them as an excuse to educate ourselves. And that, that that's what this mm-hmm. film was because I I knew I'd seen this movie come up on a bunch of lists of required queer horror viewing, and I was like, I've never even heard of that. I, I, let's watch it. Let's do it. You know. Yeah, because who's heard about the weird entry in James Whale's oeuvre, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is the one that people don't talk about. And yet here we found it to be the queerest of them all. But lest y'all think that we're going to be doing old movies all the time, just wait till we <laughs> tell you what we're doing next week, because uh, it's a bit different. But before we announce what we're doing next week, Kate, do you have anything you want to plug? Talk to, What are you doing? What's up with life? Sure. So I, I write for pop culture beast this website i'm i'm working on a thing about the guest and its queerness right now um Ooh. and about how david's a butch icon in it talk about reaching but um <laughs> uh i, I can 100 <laughs> percent see, I, I can see it. that i love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there's that and then as as mentioned i i host a horror true crime podcast called stop horror time we actually, i love we that actually, name. yeah <laughs> Yeah, my co-host Elle is great. They, they handle the true crime. I handle the the films. We actually did Old Dark House on there, but I don't even remember what I said. So you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's that terrible! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. I asked you on for a different film. If I had to know. <laughs> what? No, I wanted to do this. No, I like. I, just, I I thought it was great that you were doing it, but yeah. So that you can find that at Horror Time Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter is at Dyke Madden on Twitter. Yeah. Love that too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's become a brand on the Gay Mafia. That's nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad we got to do a film that you were really passionate about. You know, oh and yeah. We, whenever we pass these out to guests, and we're always like, "Hey, pick the one you like. Like, don't just do one because like you, know, you feel pigeonholed into doing a certain film that is, I don't know, representative of you or whatever." Yeah, unless I do the invite, and then I'm like, "Hey, please do this movie." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, well, if you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can like our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Horror Queers Facebook group. It's just called Horror Queers Group, so uh, go ahead and come to our little shindig. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram at Horror Queers. Email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have a little bit of time, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. We love those. You can also buy Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, mugs, pillows, and other shit at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E public.com. And if you want more Horror Queers content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. Uh, we are almost done with July, so if you haven't subscribed to the Patreon yet, now is your chance. We've already released full-length episodes on Relic and The Beach House, as well as an audio commentary on I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Coming up early next week is a mini-ish sode on Dave Franco's The Rental, so be sure to subscribe to that, and you can hear our thoughts on all those films. Mm-hmm. Joe, yes, I teased it, but what are we covering next week? So we're covering another film that very few people have ever heard of. It's considered a classic, but it's a little bit obscure. So we're going to jump to 1985, and we're going to talk about Fright Night. Woo! Oh, yes. Because <laughs> Chris Sarandon 
is a fucking spill out of the closet, holy shit, I'm gay character for me. Oh, those sweaters. The, the sweater game is <laughs> immaculate. This is one of those films that was on AMC all the time when I was growing up, and it's one of the few horror films, along with 13 Ghosts, um, the, the remake, that my sister <laughs> really, really, really liked, and so we would watch it every time it was on. She loved Evil Ed. It was really weird. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I'm super excited to talk about Fright Night again. Like this movie, I feel like we have uh, some big britches to fill because it's just such a seminal piece of queer horror. But mm-hmm. yeah. we're gonna try our darndest. Yeah, what better way to close out July? A- Amen. But until then, on that note, we can cross out the old dark house. Yes, and cross out horror queers. <laughs> Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, or disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, Kapora queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.